Father in heaven, we bow before you and ask for your help now in opening your word. Let the weight of your majesty rest upon this congregation and grant ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to feel. And would you do a transforming work to bring us into conformity to your Son, Jesus Christ, and so sever the roots of our attachment to lesser joys that our hearts might be ravished with the sight and the perfections of yourself. Lord, this is a miracle and only you can do it. Help me to point faithfully to it. But you come and do the work, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So the reason you exist is to share in and to share God's passion for God's glory. And so last night we tried to unpack what I mean by God's passion for His glory. And now we turn to your sharing in it. God is infinitely happy in the fellowship of the Trinity, and He has always been so from eternity. The sheer, absolute, eternal existence of God is a breathtaking idea. That He is happy in the fellowship of the Trinity from all eternity is an even more breathtaking idea and that he would then in his overflowing fullness create a universe and people in his own image destined by his grace to share in his happiness in his own perfections is the most breathtaking of all. I'm going to unpack this in two steps. The first is to try to explain that the reason that God has destined you to share in the joy that He has in Himself is that your joy in Him magnifies His worth. And the way I say it is that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. So that you never have to choose between being happy and honoring God. You dare not choose. If you choose, you blaspheme and perish. If you would honor God, you must enjoy God. And if you enjoy God, enjoying Him honors Him. And if you enjoy Him above all things, you honor Him above all things. I want to show you that. That's step number one. And then the implication, step two, is if that's true, the staggering implication is you must devote yourself through all the rest of your life to being happy. You must not let a moment go by where you are not striving if it costs you your life to be maximally happy. 
So, those two things. Let's take number one. You glorify God the most when you're most happy in Him. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. Would you take your Bible, if you have one, and can see it in the dark? Turn to Philippians chapter 1. This text, which I return to in my life over and over again, has been decisive in settling for me whether it's true or not that God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in Him. So look for that truth and see if you see it even before I point it out. Let's start at verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ would be be honored, magnified, made much of in my body. So there his, his supreme passion is that Christ would look good in his life, be honored, be magnified glorified, whether by life or by death. if If he's a live, if he lives, he wants Christ to look good by the way he lives. And if he dies, he wants Christ to look good in the way he dies. That's his passion. That's why he's alive. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, the connection between verse 21... And 20 is all important in my life. The little word for that begins verse 21 shows that he's explaining and supporting what he just said about life and death. Notice the pair. There's life in verse, at the end of verse 20, and there's to live in verse 21. And there's death at the end of verse 20, and there's to die in verse 21. So you see the pair. So he's unpacking life and death in verse 20 with live and die in verse 21. What does he say about them? In verse 20 he says, I want my my Christ to look magnificent in my bodily living and my bodily dying. That's what verse 21 says. I hope you feel that way. If you're not, I hope you're praying that God would make you feel that way. I want Christ to be magnified in my living and my dying. And now the question is, from verse 21, how would that happen? How do you make Christ look most glorified as you die? Let's just talk about the the death half of this pair. Well, because he says, I want Christ to be honored in my body by death, for to me to die is gain. You get it? I mean, can you you finish this point? How, How does that work? Christ 
be seen as magnificent in my dying. Because as I die, I say gain. Does that make sense to you? It's, it's my life. I mean, this verse is all I want to do and be. It's all I want to teach. Here's what, it's, here's what it means. As you're dying, you're losing... Okay, I'm 64. I would be losing my wife. I would be losing my 15-year-old daughter, my 12 grandchildren, my sons, my church, my retirement, the dreams of three more books I have in my mind opportunities to talk to you, travel, things I haven't experienced. I'm losing it all. And if I say at that moment, because I'm getting Christ, gain! Who looks good at that moment? Jesus looks good. He looks infinitely better than my wife and my children, my church and my ministry, my books. Because it's gain. I'm losing everything and I'm calling it gain because I get Jesus. And all I do is make it rhyme. God, Christ, is most magnified in me and my dying when I find Him most satisfying in my dying. That didn't rhyme. I'm just making it up as I go along. Christ is most magnified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. Especially in death. Especially in suffering. I mean, it's easy to be happy when all's going well. It's impossible to be happy when everything's going wrong except Christ. Unless He's your all. So there it is. That's my first point. And that's the Bible verse I would take you to. If that doesn't do it, I can't do it. It does it for me totally. Christ is most magnified in you when you are most satisfied in Him, especially at those moments when you're losing everything but Christ. Now, if that's true, the second point follows. If Christ is most magnified, glorified, looks best, shines forth most clearly in His infinite value, when I am most satisfied in Him as I lose everything else, then my vocation in life becomes to pursue that satisfaction. That's my second point. Which is why I said, all the rest of your days, not an hour should go by when you are not riveted on the purpose of being happy. Even if you have to cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, lose your life, to get it in God. So the rest of these minutes I have with you, I'm going to walk you through seven or eight or nine or ten, whatever we have time for, Bible verses that prove that. Because I have found over the years that people grew up like I did.
Namely, being told, do God's will. Don't seek your own happiness. And I would sit there thinking, is there another possibility? I mean, like, could those go together? I got ten arguments to try to help you get on a, a personal crusade to seek your deepest, highest, fullest, longest happiness in God, no matter what it costs. And it may cost you your life. Argument number one. God commands you to do it. Psalm 100, verse 1. Serve the Lord with gladness. That's a command. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. That is a command. These are the best commands in the world. <laughs> Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord Always, and again I say, rejoice. That's a command. One time, a seminar leader, we were having a little conversation in front of a crowd, and, and uh, that person said to me, I think you should pursue obedience, not joy. To which my response was, that's like saying, I think you should eat fruit, not apples. Get it? The Bible commands the pursuit of joy. Obedience is doing what the Bible commands. Fruit. Obedience. One of the things commanded is pursue it. Rejoice, serve the Lord with gladness, delight yourself in the Lord. If you are indifferent to your happiness, you are sinning. Number two, the Bible teaches that pastors should work with their people for their joy. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Paul defined his ministry here and in Philippians 1.25 as coming alongside people and working with them for their joy. If you say you shouldn't pursue that, you strive against the apostolic mandate. That's why he wrote his books. That's why pastors preach. They're coming alongside their people and fighting with them against all other satisfactions to fix people's joy wholly on God. Argument number three. The Bible shows that the nature of faith, saving faith, teaches us to pursue joy in God. The very nature of what it is to believe 
teaches us that at the essence of the Christian life is the pursuit of our joy in God. John 6, verse 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Now, do you hear the parallel in the verse? You've got two, two halves of this verse, John 6.35. I, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Not a stone to carry around. I'm your bread. So, he who comes to me, it says, will not hunger. And then he parallels coming to him to eat and be without hunger. This next phrase, he who believes. Now, these two halves define each other. Believe, he who believes in me will never thirst. So now, how would you define faith, believing, on the basis of, of that verse? Here's the way I do it. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. I'm satisfied. I'm not hungry anymore. And he who believes on me will never thirst. I'm not panicked after every satisfying drink that comes along. I've got it. So, faith is coming to Christ so as to be satisfied in Him. That's my paraphrase of John 6.35. So faith is not some intellectual decision by which you assess evidences, draw conclusions, affirm truths, and feel nothing. That's not faith. Faith is coming to a fountain and drinking. Faith is coming to bread and eating. Faith is finding Christ to be such that it is true. I do not hunger for sin anymore. That's why I said, this is a battle to the end of your life and it may require you to cut off your hand because you get up every morning hungering for sin. Probably, if you're like me anyway. Which means that every day I have to set out again on this quest and, and go to my Bible and say, show me your supreme value so that my heart will be satisfied in you and stop going after these other things that are making me such an idolater and so cruel and crabby and mean and frustrated Angry. That's number three. The definition of faith itself, the nature of faith itself, teaches us to pursue joy. Number four. The nature of evil shows that we should pursue joy in God all the time. The nature of evil. So what is evil? A lot of different ways probably to define evil. I'll give you one from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. 12 and 13. Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. Listen to the, the prophet speak of evil. Be appalled, O heavens, 
Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. And then he defines them. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out, dug out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's evil. The essence of evil is being offered a fountain of life and joy called God, tasting it and turning away from it and scratching at the earth, hoping I can find a better fountain. And, and eating the dirt and calling it good. All sin is suicidal. All sin is poison. And the devil makes it taste so good to foolish, fallen hearts who've turned away from the fountain. The devil tries to define evil as finding more pleasure than God. He's been a liar from the beginning. Don't let him do that to you. He's a liar. And he crawls right inside your guts and your brain and starts telling you, this is better this is more pleasing. This is more satisfying. And you look at the fountain of life and you say, looks boring to me. And turn and agree with the liar. That's evil. Forsaking your joy in God is the essence of evil. Jeremiah 2.12 and 13. Number five. The nature of conversion shows that we should pursue our joy in God all the time. The shortest parable, I think, that Jesus told, one verse in Matthew 13, verse 44, goes like this. It's a description of conversion. I hope it's happened to you. If it hasn't, I hope it happens to you now. Come, Lord Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's what conversion is. So you're stumbling along through life thinking it's all together. I'm healthy, strong, got a girlfriend, boyfriend, got a job, got a dream, passed a test. And you stub your toe on something. And you uncover and lift the chest. It's a chest with a million, million dollars in it. In gold. You thought you had been rich. Now you know. If I could have this. <laughs> if this were mine, so you cover it over, lest anybody else find it. Don't press every detail in a parable, right? 
and you go and you buy the field. Because evidently the law was, if you had the field and you own the field, what you find in it is yours. Evidently. So you buy the field. To buy the field, you sell everything. Sell your wedding ring. You sell your grandmother's grandfather clock. You sell your house. You sell your car. You sell your computer. Piper sold his books. And you buy that field. And the key word is, then in his joy, he sold all that he had. Remember David Livingstone, Livingston, a big name in Africa, I hope, said at the end of his life to the Cambridge students that he was talking to when they admired the pains that he had gone through at that stage. He said, I never made a sacrifice. How could he talk like that? He had suffered greatly because he knew this parable. That's why. I mean, if you watch this man getting rid of everything, you'd say, whoa, that's a huge sacrifice just to go follow Jesus. But if you saw things the way he saw things, you wouldn't call it a sacrifice. Of course, that requires that you see Jesus this way, doesn't it? Do you? I mean, compared to a career, compared to a girlfriend, compared to books, compared to your computer, whatever you like, is Jesus billions of times more valuable? Well, He is. And all I'm saying is, you should pursue that feeling. Your heart should be there. Which is why I prayed at the beginning, I can't make this happen. You can't make this happen. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. For you to walk out of here treasuring Christ a thousand times more than you treasure anything, that's a miracle. It's called here conversion. Number six. The Bible threatens us if we will not pursue our joy in God, threatens us with terrible things if we will not pursue our joy in God. I read one time uh, from Jeremy Taylor, who lived hundreds of years ago, God threatens terrible things to those who will not be happy. And I thought, that sounds so clever. I love that sentence. I wonder, I wonder if that's in the Bible. I'll read it to you from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart, therefore you will serve your enemies. God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. You see why? I'm, I'm a serious guy. Um, and agree with C.S. Lewis that uh, the pursuit of happiness is the most serious business in the world. We're not playing games here. You're going to perish if you don't get happy in Jesus. 
And that's real scary for most of us because some of, has, some of us have real wintry personalities. You know, they're springy personalities and they're wintry personalities. And I'm a wintry guy, which is why I write all these books about pursuing happiness because I'm not happy. You laugh. I want to be what I ought to be. I know, I know what the book says. I know what I'm called to do. I've tasted the fountain. I've tasted the bread. I know where my treasure is. And getting this heart to be so satisfied with that is my life. And it's a daily battle. And I'm just pointing out here how serious it is because God threatens terrible things if we continue to find uh, television or video games or pornography or drugs more valuable than Christ. Number seven. Paradoxically, the Bible's teaching about self-denial teaches us to seek our fullest joy in God. Now at this point, I'm trying to answer an objection. Because over the years, Bible people who hear me talk this way, they they say, whoa, 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 whoa. wait a minute. You're You're not owning up to all of Scripture. You're kind of picking and choosing. What about Jesus' words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross, an instrument of execution, and follow me. You go out there, tell all these people to pursue their happiness all their life. And don't let an hour go by where they're not pursuing happiness in God. How does that fit? And I, I, my response to that is, just keep reading the verse. Don't you say, I'm picking and choosing, just read the next verse. So let's do that. Mark 8, 34 and 35. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Because, now how is Jesus going to give you incentives to take up an instrument of execution? And to deny yourself things. Here's the way he motivates you. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now what kind of an argument is that? The argument is you don't want to lose your life, do you? No. So lose it. That's exactly what he says. Because if you lose it, you'll save it. And if you save it, you lose it. And I want you to save it, so lose it. And, and Jesus is not toying with words here. It is provocative, I do admit. It is provocative. But you know what he means. He means, go for broke. Get the big, eternal, full joy. Don't settle for all the stuff the world offers. Deny yourself all that. Deny yourself tin so that you can have silver and gold. Deny yourself brackish water in the gutter so that you can have mountain 
springs. Deny yourself some kind of cheapo wine so that you can have 100% proof wine. Yes, there's self-denial in the world. Deny yourself everything that will keep you from maximally enjoying God. Oh, I believe in self-denial. It's my daily bread, given the way my heart goes after other things. That's why I said, (laughs) better to lose one of your members than to have your whole body thrown into hell. where, Where did Jesus say that? He said that in trying to help men and women stop lusting. Gouge out your eye. Because it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go to hell. Lust is a treasuring of what is low. And we need to treasure what is glorious and high. And if we have to gouge out our eyes or cut off our hands... That is what self-denial is. But you don't, you don't deny yourself in order to find God unattractive. That's blasphemy. Ultimate self-denial is blasphemy. It's like looking God in the face who offers Himself to you as an infinite treasure and say, yes, but your son said I'm supposed to deny myself, so I'm not going to enjoy you. And you go, well, that's crazy. You don't think that, do you? That there's ultimate self-denial. Self-denial is a strategy for enjoying God to the max. Here's the way John, uh, Jesus put it in John 12, 25. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. So obviously the incentive there is, you want eternal life, don't you? So hate your life in this world. And that little addition, in this world, solves the paradox of Mark 8, 34 and 35. He could have said it there. Lose your life in this world. You'll save it forever. But he didn't. He's left that out. But here he puts it in. He who hates his life in this world will keep it. So if you really love your life and you want eternal, maximum joy, go ahead and do things that look like you hate your life here. That's no small thing. Kind of what Jesus meant when He said, unless you hate your mother and father, you can't be my disciple. It means doing things that to the world looks like you hate them. Like you're going to go with your wife and your kids to Afghanistan and lay your life down while your grandparents think you're crazy. Your parents think, that's hating my grandchildren. Man, I've had parents in my face. I had one parent of one of our missionaries say to me, if my son doesn't come home, I'm going to kill you. And he wasn't laughing, and I wasn't laughing, and he meant it. His son spent nine years in a country I won't name, and he did come home. And now he's preparing to go back. I don't know if his father's still living. He lived in Mexico at the time. We're not playing games here. Hate your life in this world means you go where the world would say, you're just crazy. That is a crazy way to spend your life. 
absolutely insane. You're hating your life. All I can tell is you hate your wife, you hate your kids, you hate yourself because you're going there when you could live in America or you could live in Johannesburg. It's just so safe. I mean, it doesn't look that safe around here. <laughs> but there are places a lot more dangerous. But glad you're here. I think you get it. Self-denial is real. It is real. But it doesn't mean denying yourself joy in God. It, it means denying yourself everything that keeps you from joy in God. And God has appointed for some of you to find Him most fully in the United Arab Emirates, or in China, or Nepal, or Thailand, or Indonesia, or northern India, Pakistan. Saudi Arabia. You know, I'm going next week down to the Lausanne Missions Conference and oh, I pray that resounding out of that 10 days to the whole global church will be the message. People need the gospel. They're perishing without the gospel. If they haven't heard the gospel, they don't have a chance of salvation. Let's take the gospel. And the fact is, most of the places that don't have the church already indigenously planted are places that don't want you to come. And the Bible didn't say anything about only go where they want you to come. Paul wouldn't have spent every other weekend in jail if he had followed that advice. He knew that in every city dangers awaited him. That's why he didn't marry, probably. You better marry the right person. Or don't marry. Number eight. The Bible teaches that our gladness in weakness magnifies the power of Christ and so calls us to find gladness in our weakness. I'm in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. So we exalt Christ by being glad in the midst of our weaknesses. So I'll read it to you. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So, if you want to magnify the power of Christ, and you are beset by weaknesses, the surefire way not to magnify Him is to grumble. Be angry and frustrated that you have these weaknesses. I have some weaknesses. They're glaring. And I have wrestled long with being content with them. I'll give you one example. I am a painfully slow reader. Take heart, any of you who cannot read any faster than you can talk. Just a glitch in my brain. I took, I took Evelyn Wood's reading dynamics course when I was in the 11th grade in high school desperate to be able to read faster because everybody read faster than I do. I was so embarrassed. My sister could read a, a novel in one night. 
you know, one of these teenage girl novels. Short. And I'd look at that, I'd say, how does she do that? I skipped all the novels. I was a literature major in college. I skipped every novel class. Because you had to read about six novels, and they're all this thick, and I knew I couldn't do it. So I put poetry classes in their place. Poems are short. <laughs> and I can analyze, but I can't. It's been, a, it's been like a claw on me all my life. And I've said to the Lord, I could do so much more if I could read faster. That's bad attitude. I mean, it's okay to try to overcome a weakness when you're in the 11th grade. Spend a few years trying to overcome your weakness. If the Lord finally says, look, you've got to stop trying to overcome this. I, I've appointed you to be weak in this. Okay? So now, do this verse. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So you got some. You do. All of you do. Some of you very strong in one area, very weak in another, and vice versa. And I would like you to just, after you do everything you can to discover the fullness of who you are, to rest. He made you. He didn't make any mistakes. Even those of you with disabilities. I mean, we got a big disability ministry at our church, and we, we say really radical, crazy things like nobody's a mistake. Nobody. Autism is not a mistake. Not having any elbows or shoulders is not a mistake. Come on, parents. This is the hardest thing you'll ever do is to rejoice in this child. This is the hardest thing you'll ever do. He's a gift. Number nine. The Bible commands that our generosity be motivated by joy which means if you don't pursue your joy your giving will be displeasing to the Lord 2 Corinthians 9 7 each one must give as he has made up his mind not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver so if I'm a pastor and I'm talking about giving, say. The last thing I'm going to say to my people is, I don't care how you feel, write the check. I'm never going to say that. Ever. Because that's not what this verse says. God loves a cheerful giver. Don't give reluctantly or under compulsion. So, what, what do I do as a pastor? I labor for their joy. And if they don't have it, they can keep their money. I don't want their money. I want their hearts. I want them to find Christ so fully as their treasure. These treasures just go. This is go freely. So, if I were to say to you, doesn't matter how you feel about giving. Doesn't matter whether you have any cheer in it. I'd be telling you to sin. <laughs> Wouldn't I? The Lord 
loves a cheerful giver, not a giver, legalistically under compulsion, trying to impress people with his money or relieve a guilty conscience or whatever. He wants you free. Doing what you love to do. Die. Give. Suffer. Sacrifice. Serve. Love. That's what he wants. The happiest people on the planet. Most sacrificial of all. Finally, number 10. The Bible shows that joy in God is the necessary motive for all acts of love. So I stop here because that's tomorrow morning's message. You exist to share in God's joyful passion for His glory. And you exist to share with others God's joyful passion in His glory. That's called love. And it'll take a whole message to unpack the amazing life that that is. What is love to people? I've been talking in the last 45 minutes about what love to God is. Love to God is being satisfied in God and treasuring God above all things. And you should pursue that joy, that satisfaction all the time, not an hour going by when you are not denying yourself lesser joys and pursuing the joy that comes from knowing, seeing, embracing, befriending, being saved by, justified by, cleansed by, adopted by, loved by, embraced by God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask again now that the miracle of heart change that moves all things as supreme treasures out of our lives and replaces them with Yourself as the supreme treasure of our lives. That is a miracle. It's a new birth miracle. It's a conversion miracle. It's a Holy Spirit daily renewal miracle. And I'm asking You, Father, to pour out Your Holy Spirit upon this assembly. Jesus, you sent the Holy Spirit, you said, He will glorify me. Holy Spirit, on the basis of John fourteen sixteen, I ask you, glorify the Son by making Him supremely precious in our hearts. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.